following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. It's kind of interesting. Um, since our family has grown. Now, now Don and I, our family hasn't, hasn't grown for a while. Audrey um, is 11 years old, so it's been a little while. It's... Uh, my father-in-law is not too happy about this, but it's not going to grow anymore, you know, until the girls get married one day and perhaps start their own families. Um, so, but, but the extended family is still growing quite rapidly, I might say, all right? So it's, it's interesting when I end up at some sort of family function where the majority of the Bayless family that I married into is there, it looks more and more all the time like that movie. You remember that movie? There were actually two of them, and our girls introduced our girls to these movies a while back. I couldn't believe how long ago these movies came out. It doesn't seem like this long ago, but it was the movie based on the story written along about 50 years ago, and, and the movie's entitled Cheaper by the Dozen. Maybe some of you might remember that. And then as I, as I think about my bigger family, I often think about cheaper by the dozen. Because it seems like when you take all of these cousins from different places who um, in the midst of their own families are just little angels, you know? They're just, they toe the line, they do well, all this. And then you put them together with their cousins and something happens to them. Something transforms, and it's not pretty. It's really, really not. And it usually turns into some sort of a blow-up of some kind. And I could stand up here and let you know what some of those blow-ups were. But my nieces and nephews and my daughters will be in the next service, so I'm not going to do that and embarrass them. But I will tell you this. When there is a blow-up, whether it's the movie Cheaper by the Dozen or whether it's my family Cheaper by the Dozen... There are usually, there's usually more than one person involved. Almost always. If it's like you line them up and say, all right, who's responsible? If, if they're being honest, the vast majority of that line is going to step forward. Okay? That's just the way blow-ups are. Sometimes it takes a little more work than just one person can accomplish to get a really good blow-up. You know what I'm saying? Now, it is very similar when it comes to blow-ups in history. And let me tell you something. There is no bigger blow-up in history than the death of God. And I'm not talking about Nietzsche here. When Nietzsche said that the idea many years ago of God, God is it's disappearing. He was an atheist and he said God is dead. He didn't believe God ever even existed. But he said the idea of God is beginning to die. Which he's wrong. I, I, I've talked about this in Wednesday night class. There was one of my, one of my friends at, in college that had a shirt on the front. It said God is dead signed by Nietzsche. And on the back it said Nietzsche is dead signed by God. Okay, all right, so what, what we have here, when you, when you look at this, it's not that God has died, it's this, God did die. God, Jesus Christ, who was God, he died, and that is a day that, I mean, I'm telling you guys, that is a big blow up in history, and there were a number of characters involved in that day, in the lead up to that day. The first ones we're going to dive into were the instigators. Yeah, and any blow up you have, whether it's cousins or whether it's a bigger blow up, there's always some instigators involved. I'm betting you, growing up, 
some of these people, some of you, when you were walking around knee high to a grasshopper, I'm willing to bet some of you in this room were instigators. They're usually the quiet ones, ones kind of behind the scenes, all right, that are making things happen because it's going to be very entertaining to watch the end result of this, all right? Um, The instigators in this case were the Sanhedrin, and they weren't quiet. They weren't behind the scenes making things happen. Matter of fact, they were quite, quite vocal. And let me tell you something about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious elite of Jesus' day. The high council of the Jews. And they, the majority of them anyway, despised Jesus. And if they had had the authority to do so, they would have taken care of killing him by themselves without any help. This is the issue. Their hands were tied when it came to death sentences. Tied by the authority of Rome. So, you have Jesus. He is arrested. And very quickly, he finds himself on trial. Joke of the trial, by the way. Before a past high priest by the name of Annas. And he's before him. And Jesus isn't saying a whole lot. They're throwing out accusations at him. The accusations do not stick. And then pretty quickly you see them changing from him being in front of Annas to the reigning, the current high priest by the name of Caiaphas. All right? And as as Caiaphas is on the judgment seat in the temple, this is what's taking place. They're trying to line up all this eyewitness testimony against Jesus. Here's the problem. Their eyewitnesses, they are not telling the truth and their stories don't even line up. Like I said, this whole thing is a joke. And Caiaphas finally, he is done with the proper of all of this. He's like, okay, forget it. I'm going to read, first of all, from Matthew chapter 26. And it's like this veneer of this actually being proper, he chucks it at this point. Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to read from you. For you, about verse 62 and a few verses to follow as we set this up for ourselves. And this is what he says. The high priest stood up and said to him, Jesus, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ the Son of God, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Right at this point, Caiaphas says, proper is over and done with. Let me tell you something about the high priest. We learned this as we were studying through more than a carpenter on Wednesday nights, the apologetics of our faith in Jesus Christ. A high priest was not supposed to tear their robes. They weren't. It has to be a drastic situation before they would tear. That is showing that you are very upset and you weren't supposed to do that as high priest unless there is something really, really upsetting going on. Caiaphas says he has blasphemed. There is only one result for that, and that is death. If I've already told you, the Jews can't do that. So now, another character enters the scene of this blow up. And this is the heavy 
all right? This is the guy with the power. This is the guy with the authority. We know him as Pilate. As I've already said, the Sanhedrin could not condemn Jesus to death. As a matter of fact, it was a Roman slap in the face to them that they couldn't. They would have loved to have taken Jesus and had him stoned. They would have loved to do that. They just did not have the authority to do so. So Caiaphas sends Jesus to Pilate. Let me tell you a little something about Pilate. We can read quite a bit about Pilate outside of of the biblical record. He was very well known. Pilate was a self-seeking political opportunist. He hated the Jews. All right? He was the number one power, Roman power, in Palestine. His court was the court. It was the high court of the region. He, his court, the only court in the entire nation of Rome, empire of Rome, that outranked his was the court of Caesar. There was tension between Pilate and the Jews. There had been for some time. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. But there was blood of Jews on the hands of Pilate. And this had caught the attention of the emperor. The emperor did not like uprisings. He did not like little rebellions and stuff like this. And he did not like there to be tension between his authority in a region and the natives of the region. It's something he did not like. That's the sort of thing that can rip an empire apart. So... Caesar, the emperor, knew that there was trouble. And he knew that Pilate had been the cause of trouble some in the past. And this is leverage that the Sanhedrin would exploit. All right, now we're going to get to the real trial. Turn from here, kind of save Matthew 27. We're going to be back there here in a little bit, all right? 26, we're done with that, but we'll jump into 27. Put a finger there and turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18, we'll spend most of our time between John and Matthew from here on out. I'm going to read John 18 beginning with verse 28. This is what it says. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. You see, the Passover is going on at this time. These Jewish leaders could not even go into the palace of Pilate because they would be called unclean. And all of the feasts weren't done yet. There was still another big feast. And they didn't want to miss it. This is the biggest time of the year for the Jews. All right? So they go to Pilate, but they can't even go in front of him. And if Pilate wants to speak to them, he has to leave his residence. You're going to begin to see why Pilate and the Jews don't get along too well. All right? Verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Here's the deal. They sent Jesus to Pilate with, and they had the nerve to send him. Usually when you send a criminal to the high court of the area, you send a written list of charges. Criminal charges. Guess what? There were no criminal charges. And Pilate, it's early in the morning, folks. They got him out of bed for this. He's like, you sent this guy to me. What are you charging him with? What, what is he even, what in the world did you wake me up this morning for? Your dumb Passover stuff. Why am I here? And this is how they respond to him. This is interesting. Verse 30. They answered, there is so much sarcasm in this. 
They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, were not a criminal, we would not have delivered him to you. Guys, read into what's going on here. These two groups, Pilate and the other Roman authority, Roman leaders, and the Jewish religious leaders, they don't like each other at all. Continuing on, verse 31. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We're not permit, permitted to put anyone to death. Okay, guys, do not, do not let that fly over your heads. Up to this point, they haven't even brought any charges against Jesus. They wake up Pilate to come out here and be the one who is to decide whether or not this man is a criminal. And then they let the cat out of the bag. They don't want him just any type of punishment. No prison here. They want capital punishment. They want death. This is the sort of thing that Pilate would figure out and it would blow his mind. He is dumbfounded. This is the sort of thing that ends political careers, folks. What if he kills Jesus and there's an uprising? Pilate is dumbfounded by what they ask. If you turn over, now you don't have to turn there, but if you look at Luke chapter 23, the Sanhedrin finally makes known to Pilate the charges that they are bringing against Jesus. Charge number one is this. They claim Jesus is a rebel. They claim he's a rebel. A, a rebel to the empire of Rome. Here's the deal. Nothing that has happened in the past three years shows anything whatsoever that this guy was a rebel wanting to take power from Rome. Nothing. No evidence behind it. So Pilate's like, whatever. I mean, Pilate's no dummy. He, he, he's heard of this Jesus guy before. Second one, he says that they, they say, he, oppose, he opposes taxes being paid to Caesar. What just happened earlier in the week? Jesus stated in front of everybody, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Do you remember that? He held a, he said, give me a coin. They gave him a coin that said, whose face is on it? They say Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. So their charge here, stupid. I mean, people heard that. So Paul's like, yeah, whatever. That's ridiculous. So first two charges, they're done. Third charge. This Jesus claims to be a king. Now this is kind of a big deal. This is within the empire of Rome. There is one king. There is one truly in authority. Now, you're going to say, what about King Herod? No, King Herod is a figurehead. There is one emperor. There is one Caesar. There is one king. And at different times in the Roman Empire, they even worshipped that emperor, that Caesar, as a god. Okay, so this is legitimate. And Pilate wants to find out a little bit about this. So, stay here in John chapter 18. Let's look at verse... Uh, let's look at verse 32. Actually, let's look first at verse 33. I think I might have told you the wrong thing, Zach. Sorry. Let's start in verse 33. This is what it says. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did the others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Yeah, doesn't like the Jews that much. Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting 
so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king, Jesus answered. You say correctly, I'm a king. For, I, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Then he said, when he had said this, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Guys, don't let that question stated by Pilate slip over your heads either. What is truth? You know what Jesus is trying to do here? He's trying to have a truth conversation with Pilate. And I heard this in a sermon so, so many years ago. I was in college. Trust me, it's a long time ago. And he was preaching that down, I don't remember who it was. But he said this, if only Pilate had known, he asked the question, what is truth? And truth personified was standing right in front of him. Amazing. All right, so Pilate, this one, this one catches his attention. So you are a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my people would be fighting. Do you see my people fighting out there? All right. Pilate then tells those who are accusing Jesus, I see no guilt in him. This is the first of ten times. Pilate would try ten times to release Jesus. Ten different times. Now don't misunderstand and think that Pilate's this great guy trying to, trying to release somebody who's innocent. No, Pilate's just trying to, keep, trying to keep himself out of the fray. And when he wants to release Jesus, it's because he thinks there's going to be trouble if he kills him. All right. He also would try to pass the buck to Herod. After all, Jesus lived and did most of his work in Herod's jurisdiction. So he sent him to King Herod. Um, it didn't work out. Herod didn't find anything wrong with him either. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's like, oh, I thought I'd gotten rid of him. After he comes back from Herod, this is what Pilate does. He says, well, I'll just get him. I'll beat him up real good. Just have him beat up real, real good, and then maybe that will pacify his enemies. But it doesn't work. Now, Pilate still has one, one of this ace in the hole here, though, okay, guys? His best bet to, to get Jesus off of his hands would look like this. Release a prisoner for the Passover. That was the tradition between the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem. On the Passover, they would release one prisoner. And he's thinking, okay, here we go. We can get this done. Now turn over from there. Keep a finger there in Matthew 18. And turn over to, or in John 18, turn over to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We're going to spend a little time here. I'm going to begin with verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So the people gathered together, and Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Now, don't misunderstand something about Barabbas. Some, some, some places he's called a robber. Some places he's called a murderer. He's an insurrectionist, all right? He is a Roman rebel. He is one. And he had led an uprising, and the result of that uprising, it was crushed, and he was taken as prisoner. All right? And Barabbas to this crowd was not a criminal. He was a hero. 
Just understand that because nobody in this crowd likes the Romans. So make sure you understand that. But on the other hand, you have Jesus. And Pilate knows about Jesus and the level of his popularity amongst the commoners. Jesus was very popular. And Pilate also knew that the only reason that Jesus is in front of him is because the religious leaders were jealous of his, of his fame, of his power, and his authority. So I'm sure Pilate's thinking, well, it's the commoners who cry out who they want released. Here we go. They love Jesus. They're going to call for Jesus. But you know what happens. He says, who am I to release for you? They say, release Barabbas. He says, well, what do I do with Jesus? They say, what? Crucify him. Pilate, that's like his, that's like his, no, that's like his ace in the hole. He's like, this is going to get this whole situation off my hands for me. And I know that we still ask ourselves, how in the world could these people who are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Less than a week earlier, now be shouting as Jesus came into Jerusalem. How in the world can they now be shouting, crucify him? Let's dig into that just for a second. This isn't really entirely the same crowd as the Sunday crowd. The Sunday crowd, remember, this is the Passover. People came from all over that region of the world to come and celebrate the Passover. And those shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the majority of them were foreigners. They weren't locals. And they were shouting out, they were praising Jesus. Not only that, by this time, Jesus has already been beaten up once. And as they have Barabbas and Jesus in front of them, who looks more like the powerful political rebel? Barabbas or Jesus, who's been beaten to a pulp by this point? Remember, these people misunderstood what Jesus was here for. He was here to lead them from Rome. Like Moses led Israel from the bondage in Egypt. And this guy standing in front of him doesn't really look like this rebel leader that much anymore. And not only that, it's very tough for these common people to face the challenge and the, and the derision of the religious leader's of the day. And that's why they shouted, crucify him. Look what happens next. A little tidbit gets thrown in here by Matthew. Look at, look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with this, that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Pilate, along with his wife, and along with about everyone else in that day, were very superstitious people. They believed that the gods told people things through their dreams. And his wife was so upset that she sent a message to Pilate while he is officially on his judgment seat and said, have nothing to do with this Jesus guy. This messes with Pilate's head even more. Pilate at this point has already had Jesus beaten up. Now he commands, he's like, I don't want to kill this guy. So now he commands that he be scourged. Understand scourging. 
They called it a cat of nine tails. It was a rod about this long. And from that rod were nine leather thongs. And from those pieces, or uh, leather, straps of leather. And in each one of those was to be either metal or sharp objects on the end of each one of those. The individual being scourged would be stretched out, whether by their arms or around a post, so that their back muscles were tensed. And then they would be beaten with the whip. Many people didn't survive a scourging. Some were disemboweled from a scourging. And this is Pilate's cowardly way, ironically, of trying to save Jesus. It's like, if I just beat him up enough, if I just beat him up enough, maybe they'll say, That's, it's enough. It is enough. Let him go. It's kind of like, you remember when the movie Braveheart, maybe some of you have seen that. He's supposed to cry out mercy. And by the end, who's crying out mercy? The crowd. Mercy, mercy. From the beating that he endured. And his beating was nothing like what Jesus endured. Jesus was battered and beaten almost beyond recognition. And the truth finally, finally comes out. Turn to Matt. Turn back over to, to John chapter 19. Up to this point, there's one very, very important little, very important little piece of information here that the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, have held back. All right? Turn there, look at verse 6. I'm going to start halfway through it. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews then answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because, catch this, he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who has delivered me to you has the greater sin." So, his wife has already suffered in a dream. Pilate believes that that dream came from the gods. And now, what does he find out? This guy says he was the son of God. So he goes to Jesus and tells him, Tell me where you're from. Are you from somewhere beyond this world? Jesus doesn't say a thing. He says, Do you not understand? I can set you free. And I can also put you on that cross. And Jesus tells him, you would have no authority if it hadn't been given to you. And Pilate tries even harder. He redoubles his efforts to release Jesus. But guess what? The Sanhedrin, they start playing dirty here. Look at verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. That's, that's swinging below the belt right there, folks. 
Pilate has already got some contention going on between him and Caesar. Things aren't great between Pilate and Caesar. And if they are going to come and butt heads, who's going to lose? Pilate. So the religious leaders, they, they swing below the belt here. Pilate looks around. He's very quickly losing control. You read over into Mark, you see that a riot is beginning to break out. And he's like, he has lost control here. So then look what happens. Verse nine, chapter 19, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, get this. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. These guys who hate Caesar. See, the Jewish leaders pretend allegiance here to Caesar. Pilate pretends innocence. He washes his hands of it all, which is a Jewish custom, by the way, not a Roman custom. It says, blood be on you guys. It's not going to be on me. Yeah, sure, whatever. Both, both the religious leaders and Pilate pretend that they are wielders of justice here. But in the end, they're just... Notorious. It's funny in this account, the one who gets the label notorious is Barabbas. <laughs> the ones that should wear the label notorious are the Sanhedrin and Pilate. The Sanhedrin will forever be remembered as villains, as murderers. Pilate will forever be remembered as a coward. But understand something. We have to understand something when we look back upon this from 2,000 years later, there was more going on than meets the eye. The 22nd Psalm predicted that the coming Messiah would die by crucifixion. Guys, understand something. When the 22nd Psalm was written, Rome wasn't even around. Roman crucifixion wasn't even around. And when you read the 22nd Psalm, it talks about the Messiah, his hands and his feet being pierced. If the Sanhedrin had had the authority, I'd already told you, what would have happened to Jesus? He would have been what? He'd been stoned to death. That's how they did it. Two different times in the Gospels, people tried to stone Jesus. Did it happen? No. One of the times, Jesus, this just blows my mind. They have him on a cliff ready to throw him off and start heaping stones on his head, all right? He turns around and it says, he walked through their midst. Did they all of a sudden say, oh, he's okay? No. They cowered before his authority and his power. He turned around, looked at him, and they parted the ways like the Red Sea parted before Moses and the Israelites, and he walked right through them. There is more going on here than meets the eye. God was at work in all of this. God the Father was at work in all of this. God the Son was at work in all of this. You don't believe me? Turn to John chapter 10, our last piece of scripture for the day. 
This is Jesus, actually shortly before one of those times when they're going to try to kill him, all right? John chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. Let's just see what Jesus has to say here quite a while before he ends up on the cross. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Catch this. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, on that Good Friday, there was more at work than met the eye. God the Father was working. God the Son was working. But there was even more to it than that. The work of others was on display that day, that incredibly dark day as well. And this is something we can never forget. The price for my sin was paid about 2,000 years before I even came into this world. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, washed clean by his what? His blood. Your sin put him on that cross. And my sin put him on that cross. We are so quick to point the finger at the Sanhedrin, point our fingers at Judas, point fingers at Pilate. When we are just as guilty of putting him on that cross. We call it Good Friday. As I told you, It wasn't good for Jesus. It's good for us. And the great thing about it is what we get to celebrate next week. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He didn't just say, I lay my life down. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. But that's not the end of a statement. That I might, what? Take it up again. Folks, the reason it is a good Friday is because of what happened on Sunday. And we're going to celebrate it next week.